If you love to read books, chances are you love to talk about them too. But have you ever wondered about whether your favorite celebrities or public figures love to read as well? If you might share a favorite book or preferred genre with them? Well, I sure have. So I'm on a mission to find book lovers, book nerds, if you will, in unexpected places. In this interview series, I'll be talking with people you recognize but don't necessarily associate with books, musicians, actors and actresses, athletes, and more. We will be discussing all of their current projects you want to hear about, of course, but we will also be digging into their unique reading and writing lives. In this interview, I talk with Dr. Francois Clemens. You know him best for playing the iconic character of Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. As Dr. Clemens prepared to release his first book, a memoir entitled Officer Clemens, I had the opportunity to chat with him about a little bit of everything. From openly discussing his experiences navigating his personal life and his role in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with respect to his sexual orientation and race, to sharing stories about his childhood and literary influences. We laugh, we cry, and everything in between. My cheeks have never hurt like this after an interview from smiling so broadly. So trust me, this is one you don't want to miss. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Francois Clemens. So welcome, Dr. Francois Clemens. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, it really is such an honor to have you here and get to talk about your new book. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. I'm very excited. Uh, I kept wondering, well, what do they want to ask me? Why are they interested in me? <laughs> As I was talking to my, my literary agent, she said, it's the book. It's the book. I said, oh, wake up, Francois. Well, <laughs> The book, and uh, so, I mean, so much you tell in the book about your life. It's fascinating. Well, I, I'll be honest with you. I thought I had an interesting life, uh, not necessarily by choice, but circumstances and some of the responses that I had to life made my life very, very interesting. And I do think back on it. And uh, the one thing I will be honest about is that if I had a chance to do it again, there's some things I would do differently <laughs> because uh, uh -huh. sometimes the outcome was very surprising. Or it wasn't what I wanted to be or, you know, that kind of thing. So I would have done some things a little differently. Sure. I think that's as we grow older and we learn hindsight is twenty twenty, mm -hmm. right? Do, exactly. Dare I ask, would you like to share any of those things you would have done differently? Well, um, uh, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it would have been. But I think I would have tried to handle my uh, being an openly gay person with Fred Rogers a little differently. I would have tried, but I was only 24 years old. So all many times when I think of different options or possibilities, I weigh in the factor that at 24, I just didn't know. Sure. So I was looking to older people for advice, suggestions. And the irony of living your own life is that you really are the best person to make certain decisions. In my humble opinion, and I do mean it humble, they didn't know what the hell they were talking about most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I boiled it down to the fact that I, I remember a distinguished gentleman I was speaking with. And I said, you've never loved a man, have you? It's that simple. Mm -hmm. He said, no, I haven't. I said, then you don't really know what I'm talking about. You really sure. don't understand what, what, which, what I feel inside. Because he was talking about his relationship with a woman, which is normative in our society and expected. And what, how she had fulfilled him, his partnership and those kind of things. I don't feel that at all. I don't have the file up here. I have sure. friendships. Lord have mercy. I have. I call them my sister wives and my pals and all. You know, it, it's a very feminine life that I've lived. The friends that I've had around me, the people who raised me were women, but I never felt what he feels. And so, I, in having that discussion with him, I came to the conclusion, for the most part, he had no idea of the depth of what I felt and my love. So. I stopped asking those guys for advice. Sure. You know, I was surprised. And for folks that are going to be listening to this, they may or may not have read your book at, at the point that the interview posts. Um, so I was surprised when I was reading a bit the way that that was handled on the show and that it seemed like to me that Mr. Rogers was OK personally with you being whoever you are. He had no problem with you being gay, but it was made very clear that your character on the show would not be gay. And so I, I cannot imagine how difficult that was for you to kind of balance and navigate those things with your personal relationship with him, with your job, with you just trying to figure out and be who you are. Well, you're absolutely right. You put your 
finger on the uh, the fact that it was an incredibly difficult thing to balance because um, I wanted to be true to myself, true to him, true to the show, true to my peers. I didn't want to do anything that I thought would bring ruination or you know uh, bring the wrong criticism uh, on the program. I, I cared for Fred a great, great deal, and he felt sure. the same way about me. So I wanted to do things that were very positive for this man who had been so nice to me. And in those days, being openly gay was a disaster because of all the so-called, and I say it that way, so-called Christians in the world who uh, don't espouse love first and unconditional love. Love thy neighbor as thyself, and, you know, and love the Lord thy God with all thy might, and all thy strength and everything. And that's all it says. So all this other judgment is, in my opinion, is man-made. So I, um, I began to do a lot of reading, as you say. I read the Bible five or six times. A lot of times what I was reading was ways to get rid of being gay. <laughs> there was a way to erase it or pray mm -hmm. it away, I said in, in my book. There is no way to pray away your essence, the very uh, center of your being. Sure. So I, I soon, it took me a while, but I learned that. And I learned to accept myself. But I had a lot of help from people like Fred who... Uh, was never negatively judgmental. He just simply said, you know, uh, Heinz 57 and, and uh, Johnson and & Johnson and the cereal companies and what have you that sponsored the program most likely would not support my position on being gay. And so mm -hmm. on the air, I had to play a role of Officer Clemens and it was assumed that he was straight because I had a wife and she made a couple of uh, appearances on the program and... Um, even while I was walking through those motions, I was asking myself, why do I have to do this? Why? Ever since I was 12 or 13, I was saying, why am I different? I was looking for, so to speak, another door to go out, you know, and say, sure. ah, I'm like you guys. I, I want the same thing you want. It never happened. You know, you also talked in the book, kind of another struggle, it seems like, on the show was... Um, trying to figure out how to navigate your role as a black police officer and just generally in the black community, there are obviously still to today struggles with police officers. And I mean, it, you were really, I guess, the first um, black character on a children's television show, right, to begin with, much less than having to be put in this role that's kind of conflictual as well. So I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about that, too, and how? Yes, you know, once again. That? That was very uh, complicated and difficult because I learned very early on that the policemen, as we generally see them, are not always your best friend. And Fred was portraying them as a helper. And it just conflicted so much with the encounters. I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Sure. When I was a child in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, the policemen definitely played another role. They were sometimes involved in some illegal activities. It was mm. proven, and they were abusive. They, you couldn't go. A black boy like myself in Youngstown could not turn to the police for help. It was that mm -hmm. simple. And there were things happening. Uh, I lived a couple of blocks from the grade school. I found out the hard way that there were things that went on over there at night that were unsavory, unchristian, and that mm. I had no business over there. So I would. I was curious at first, and so that's why I was nosing around. So I went over there. And I, when I saw some of the things that were going on, it broke my heart. And so that kind of life was what I brought to Fred. I brought the truth, my honesty. And I said, Fred, this is what I know. And he said, that's not what I know, friends. And we spent a lot of time really talking about who Officer Clemens was. Mm -hmm. Because Fred wanted him to be a helper. And I had a lot of pulling to do and stripping and undoing things, you know, and forgiving and understanding before I could put on that uniform uh, and be comfortable. The fact that I was doing it in the neighborhood and doing it in a show helped in the sense that I would do a role on the operatic stage if I was doing Porgy and Bess or if I was doing Traviata or something. When I came on stage, I took it off. So there were times when I really took uh, the coat of, you know, the policeman's outfit off. I was not Officer Clemens. Sure. Well, the universe did not agree with me. <laughs> it seems like I was uh, being portrayed as Officer Clemens all over the country because mm -hmm. of the television program. So wherever I went, 
people really began to even refer to me as officer. And I, I, I began to get used to it. It took a while. And I began to think of him more as a helper. Uh, I didn't have a billy club. I did not have a gun. I didn't have a whistle to blow for help. You know, all these things. It was singing. And it was my personal relationship with the members of the neighborhood that uh, made it such a friendship. I'll call it that. I was a member of the neighborhood. So Queen Sarah, King Friday, and mm -hmm. Lady Abra and Mr. McFeely, I had relationships with all of them. So, uh, they, and ultimately they became my closest friends off of the set because we spent so much time together and we were constantly coming together. And there were some problems that were being solved in the, uh, on the show and some off of the show. But I knew that I had someone whom I could talk to, not just Fred, and, and but Betty and uh, some of the other characters, I'm afraid, who's, who are dead now. And so it was um, quite a vehicle for my own inner growth to be on that show. Mm -hmm. And so Officer Clemens became second nature to me, but I had to do a lot of stroking and understanding and quiet listening before I could absorb him into my being, but everywhere I would go, I wear the uniform. People love to see me wearing the <laughs> uniform, you know. But they always made a distinction. Oh, you're a singing policeman, you know. You you sing. You have a beautiful voice. They never said, oh, you were great at karate or uh, you're a great <laughs> boxer or or something like that. It was always, uh, you know, something positive. And I mean, I gradually changed totally over the uh, number of years that I did the role. I really felt, and I got letters. I got letters from people saying, you're the reason I'm a policeman. Well, that was quite a, um, an adjustment for me to think that I had influenced a young person over those 50 years who decided to become a policeman. And several of them were black policemen. So the idea, I expected the, the musician side. People said I studied music or I fell in love with classical music because of you or something like that. But when it became you know, to the part of a police officer, I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad it was a positive uh, influence, but it was something totally unexpected. Yeah. Do you think if Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood were happening today, do you think some of these things would be different? And if so, how? I've, I've been asked that question before as I've traveled uh, around America. And I must say, I, I'd rather tell you the truth and just be done with yeah. it. No, I don't think it's changed at all because racial attitudes uh, have not really changed. Instead, what's happened is they have been brought out in the center stage so that we all see them. We've got our dirty laundry, as they say. We talk about it. it. The society in the 50 years that I've been involved in theater simply talks more about everything instead of trying to be a secret or hide it. Because, for example, I had no... Uh, I had no models uh, as a boy. How do you learn to be gay? That's one thing. And I think that's a great question for the ages. How do you learn to be gay? Because we're people. How do you learn to be trans? And right. uh, the thing is, there were gay writers, painters, dancers, conductors. They were there. But they were all <laughs> either on the down low, which is the thing where they do privately. They have mm -hmm. their personal life. Or <clears throat> they were pretending they were bisexual or they were straight. And some of them actually wrote books. But these books were not published while they were alive. And they're barely being published now so that I can, I know some resources. I've been doing some research. You can find some publications that are dealing very, very frankly with some of the things that were happening in the 20s and 30s that were indeed very much a part of the gay community. But they could not be open and you know, we could go on and on about the, uh, the some of the activities that we know our society has been involved in that are not sure. always open and honest. Look at the Me Too movement, uh, the problems we've had in the Catholic Church. There's only one church because the Methodists, the Lutherans, mm -hmm. the Episcopal, they've all been doing the same thing. It's not like one church is responsible. But um, we, we talk about things now. That is one of the differences. The second big difference is I a lot of times seem to be saying the same thing, in my opinion, that Fred Rogers said, and I love you as you are, you're special, you make every day a special day just by being yourself. Yeah. Well, I really mean that. I don't have to put on a show or pretend, but I'm saying it now to people who are 47, who are 35, who are 50, 
who grew up with the show. And Fred dies, of course, and there are reruns on television, but sometimes when I'm asked to do an engagement somewhere, whether it's in the South or Midwest or California, a lot of people come to those performances who need to hear those same words of acceptance and love and support. It's just amazing to me. And sometimes they bring their families uh, their, or their parents even with them. Uh, I've had older people bring their mom and dad say, we watched it when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they talk about their grandparents. It's interesting talking, you know, from one adult to another adult about some of the issues that we still have in our mm-hmm. lives, in our society. As we grow, we still need to be told that we are loved, that we're special, that somebody cares, there's a, a need for empathy. And then they always say, you know, we need it now more than ever. And they point out why they feel that way. And I find that fascinating. It feels like a continuation and an extension of Fred's special ministry. And that's what I call it. I don't feel the same kind of ministry. I never went to that kind of seminary. Mm-hmm. But I do feel an anointment. And I feel a calling. I feel that I'm spiritually anointed to do what I'm doing. But it's dressed up a little differently. Sure. And... Um, There are other issues, many, uh, frankly, that I had to deal with that Fred never had to deal with. And I think that that was actually part of what brought us together so so deeply together. Uh, He never understood poverty the way I do. I lived it. I know what it's like to go home, to go to bed hungry, Mm -hmm. uh, to not have your parents there. He had a tremendous support system. He should have one. Everybody, in my opinion, should have one. But I did not have one. So I learned the love and the care of strangers, the empathy, who sometimes stepped into that role. And I had to say, do I trust this person or do I not trust this person? And I said, there's something inside of me that said yes. And the response from that person in our community was so wonderful and so profound that I I tested it again and again. And I basically began to feel People are the same all over the world, no matter what color they are, no matter what age, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. They want to be they want to be helpers. They want to show you that they care. And if they see you trying to do something, there's there are helpers. Just as now we have this challenge with um, uh, these uh, viruses and stuff. We have people who step forward in a role of serving and helping and healing. And that's always been the case. That's always been there. I just had to open myself to the fact that just because my parents were not getting along did not mean that there were other pe- were not other people in the world who could embrace me and help me to grow and be strong. That is one of the things that drew me the, uh, the, the closest to Fred Rogers. He was so patient and so understanding. Um, he, it, it was a healing relationship. Sure. I think folks will be surprised in some ways reading your memoir because of the scope of what you cover. And you've kind of just touched on that a little bit. But it starts before you were born with your family history and walks through you growing up, even though the name of the book is Officer Clemens. And we we get to that and we get to your relationship with Fred Rogers and all. But I think folks will be surprised, um, pleasantly so, to see you talk about your formative years as well. Yes, because. Uh, first of all, I really wanted, uh, I was talking to someone years ago about what it was like to grow up, what my childhood was like. And I realized that I grew up in a matriarchy. There were women, my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, Lord have mercy, and Cora, and Hattie, <laughs> and Emma. You know what I mean? They were like surrogate mothers, and they took care of me. Uh, on a certain level, I had all these uh, surrogate mothers, and they helped my mother. And so, that was one of the things I wanted to share. I did not come from a patriarchy where the father and the grandfather and all that. These were black women who uh, knew how to survive. They were courageous. Mm-hmm. They they gave me um, a foundation of grit and how to survive, how to how to be strong, how to hold, you know, a stiff upper lip, as they say. And I wanted to honor that. I really wanted people to know the role of femininity was in every aspect of my life. And then that carried over into my own identity, that as a creative artist, I have a feminine side. And I think that that's an important thing for people to look at and say, well, you don't seem feminine or you don't seem this way. 
feminine femininity is strong in my yes, mind. Thank it's not something <laughs> yeah, you know, weak and uh superfluous because the women solved problems. Mm-hmm. The women were the ones who said, We'll see to it that that happens. You you want that, you need that. Well, I'm glad you told us. We'll 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 let you know. And they worked things out. So there were people who did not understand that I came from that kind of I didn't have the father, the grandfather, the uncles who owned businesses or were doing public uh, service of some kind or other. It was the women who stood strong and encouraged my music, encouraged me to um, uh, go on to college, to graduate school. Uh, they, they were pillars. Mm-hmm. So that was one aspect that when I was writing. The other part was uh, how, how, how hard it is to be a musician, to practice, uh, you know, to find that. Even though I felt, frankly, gifted, talented, whatever you want to call it, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And these other things that are going on in your life are important. You do them. But I had to stay focused. If I was going to learn the French repertoire or the German repertoire or the Italian or whatever, I had to stay focused. And um, th- there was a certain fear that I had of flunking out of school. I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> I'll miss that assignment or, you know, I won't get that paper done. I won't get a. So there was a motivation to succeed. You cannot carry failure back home. So get on that horse and ride. And I could hear my <laughs> the voice of my relatives saying, you know, uh, we didn't raise you to fail. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, what, however difficult it is, you keep going and we are here for you. Consequently, I developed a, a spiritual life, which came from them going to church, sitting next to them, singing the songs they sang, hearing them, and learning to sing the songs, recognizing at a very young age, I had a gift for music, being Mm -hmm. a conductor, being a singer. And I learned the power of music and the power of uh, communicating on a spiritual level because the songs spoke of a deep love and need of God, of someone to deliver us like the Israelites, Mm -hmm or deliver us from the Daniel of the lion's den or something like that. I sang those and I meant them when I sang them. I was praying for certain things to happen in my life. And in my opinion, as I walked and I sang, and I meditated and I prayed, I began to be aware of a divinity in my life, that there was a purpose. These things were not haphazardly happening and they weren't accidental either. Uh, and I even talked quite a bit of time with Fred Rogers about the fact that we met, because I don't feel that was an accident either. Mm. We were destined to do something together. He had his role, and I have mine, and obviously mine uh, involved a lot more music, and his was very much on the television. I never expected to be on television at all, quite frankly. Uh, it just it was, you know, something. I, I was looking at the operatic stage, and I thought that's where I'm going to make my mark, and. My goodness, I've been I've been so wrong. <laughs> that was part of what was so fascinating, though, in your story is these things, like you said, it was it was almost like fate, like one little thing happened, it led you to another, and then all of a sudden yes. you're in this place that you never would have imagined yourself, and never. look what it turned into. Yes, it is uh, saying yes sometimes when the universe comes mm. to you, and there is an offer or there's an opportunity, rather than saying no, I said yes. And a lot of times I said yes because I, I didn't feel I had any choice. So it wasn't <laughs> wisdom and br- being brilliant. I just simply said, well, I think I'd better do this because I can't go back to that. I can't go back there. Um, it, it's interesting how life teaches us and pulls us and turns us in the directions that it wants us to go. Because I, was, I thought I was studying very hard to be a young musician. But there was another school that I was attending I wasn't aware of it, and that was like the school of life, Hmm. Um, how to get along, how to deal with people. Um, The role that I had chosen uh, to play involved a lot of sacrifice. I had no idea when I began that I was going to be that. Uh, Well, the first word in my mind was lonely. I spent a lot of time Hmm. alone. I'm an extrovert. I love being with people. I'm at home on stage. But... In order to develop the way I've developed, you need some quiet time by yourself. And probably the greatest gift that I got out of my youth was, first of all, to learn. I meditated. I think that's a great thing to sit 
and commune with the universe. I feel a um, I feel a tie, a relationship now. And I wrote the book, and Fred was over my shoulder. You look, you're in the room. This is my office, and he was here almost all the time, helping <laughs> me, giving me suggestions. So I believe in the communication of spiritual things. But it came about because I was forced to be alone uh, in order mm-hmm. to do some of the things uh, that I wanted to do. I was not a, um, what's the word? I was not a uh, um, like outcast kid, you know, or someone who didn't fit in. I was very popular. I liked other people, but I knew there was something different. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing, you know, everything that they were doing on the outside, something else was going on on the inside. And frankly, I was doing a lot of observing. Uh, when I look back on a number of those experiences, I may have been physically present, but I was the observer. Yeah. And sometimes I was the observer because I was the only black person there to see what was going on. Or I was in a group. I was a singer or I was uh, in, in college. Overland, there were not very many black people at the time that I went. Then I went to Carnegie Mellon and uh, got involved there. And a lot of times I was the only black person. And in my opinion, sometimes I was the only gay person. I was certainly the only out one, you know, in my circle. Sure. But so I became realized in writing uh, these uh, notebooks that I kept, I was observing things around me. And so when I started writing seriously, because eventually I had to go see this wonderful book doctor down in New York named Peter Alsom. Uh, I went to see him and he helped me organize 6,000 pages, if you're ready. And that 6, was ev- pages? <laughs> oh, that was easily 10,000. Oh, oh my goodness. I, I, just, <laughs> I did some self editing. <laughs> and I wrote about everything, and they, they helped me to be oh, aware of wow. everything for us all was not, you know, important <laughs> in such detail. But that was also one of the reasons I remember so much of what happened. I was writing about it. And so I had page after page after page. So when I finally got with someone like Peter who knew how to do some judicious cutting and rearranging. Uh, his, he's very much involved. He knows the story probably as well, if not better than I do. But you don't see his touch. He's so nimble and he's so uh, refined in making a suggestion here or a suggestion there. And I could take them or not take them because I was paying him. But at the same time, you pay him and then use his knowledge. Sure. So uh, he helped me bring it down from 6,000 to 2,000 and down to about five or 600. And then we worked some more. That's lots, you know, of when you're, because I wanted to write it myself. I did not want a ghostwriter. I did not want a celebrity person, you know, to write, because uh, right. those are all over the place. I wanted to write it myself because I, no one could feel it, in my opinion, like I feel it or would say it. So it's a great labor of love. I'm very, very happy to have done it. Uh, the irony is that I've written a lot, but I don't feel like I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask, with that many pages, is this just the first? Do we have more books to come? Uh, you, yes. you have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what it's turned into, I'm going to have a collection of short stories, I know. Oh. Because uh, my, uh, both Peter and my uh, editor over there, uh, Amensa, at, um, at uh, Catapult, have recognized that I have about four or five short stories. And I've had one of them published up here at the New England Review, a magazine in, uh, up here in New England in Middlebury. And that made me aware, oh my goodness, that story can stand on its own. It has value, it has substance. Well now, so I have about four or five of those. I'm going to do a collection now, I oh, think, of short stories. I'm so excited. You <laughs> have such a great voice in in the memoir. I mean, I'm I'm so glad, like you said, that you wrote it yourself. A lot of quote unquote famous people when they go to write a memoir, have someone write with them. Um, but you're a great writer. You're a natural born storyteller. Folks listening to this can hear that. I think when they read your book, they will hear that. Um, do you think that comes from just being an extrovert, like you said, or has that come through your family? Um, I was thinking about your granddaddy in the beginning of the book, actually, and where he would take you on walks and tell stories. And yes. <laughs> that was so important to me. I was writing the book, as a matter of fact, and attending a, a writing um, summer program at uh, Middlebury College called Breadloaf. And it's halfway up the mountain when you go up there where they ski and carry on. Oh, I had never been up that mountain in five or six years. And someone suggested I go up there. And what I finally did, I went to this uh, writing camp, or, which was just wonderful. 
and I was there working on the uh, the memoir, and it was like, uh, I'm sitting in the library. The professor had made some suggestions about what we should write and how we should rearrange and all that. And all of a sudden, this, uh, the feeling and the tremendous presence of my grandfather came, and I began to put down a little buttercup, and the magic came. I wrote 10 children's stories. I'm waiting to get them published, but I have written them. And they're all about my grandfather taking me, he was the babysitter, taking me down by Crab Creek where we sat and we were fishing. And that magic cane, he always used a cane, began to talk. And when that cane began to speak, mm -hmm. he told me things about our life in the world before we were slaves in America. Well, you can imagine, I had, you know, these saucer eyes. I didn't have, I didn't know half of what he was talking about, but it stayed in my head. You know, it's like, I remember Afrique, I remember Benin, I remember uh, some of the um, things that we did, the mm -hmm. lion, you know, the animals that were there that could eat you up, those kinds of things <laughs> that children remember. And so I began to write about these, this story, Little Buttercup and the Magic Cane, and I realized what a tremendous influence my grandfather had had on me in the midst of these women, because um, he was, uh, he, he had arthritis, he called it rheumatiz. Mm -hmm. And he walked with a cane, and they thought also that he was uh, so Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was, uh, everybody kept an eye on him <laughs> and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So in the morning when he got up, he, he and I did, developed this friendship where my grandfather said, I was called Buttercup, Cup, come on up here, and let's go walking down by the, by the creek. And they would say, oh, great, they'll keep each other company. So we had a lot of support from the family for me and my grandfather, Saul. So I would get up and go with him. And as we walked, sometimes the cane would start talking or I'd be sitting. And it was the most wonderful sense of my selfhood, my presence. I am a person. I am somebody because my grandfather said this. And it was a long time before I realized who was talking. Mm. I find that fascinating. I believed for years <laughs> that it was the cane. And when I mentioned it to my brother, he was older, more cynical. And my, <laughs> my, my parents and my grandparents, they said, boy, you know, that wasn't that cane talking. That was your, your grandpa talking. <laughs> and I say to myself, oh, that's our secret. You know, the only ones who know, really know. Isn't that interesting how I interpreted that? Well, well, you were very, was. very young, right? I mean, you were, yes. what, three, four years old, maybe? Yes, so. yes, I was so young. Yes. But uh, when I was in his company, something trans, trans mm, happened. I can't explain it, but the atmosphere and the bond, the love between him for me, because he became very, very much my caretaker in, in that environment. And uh, everyone respected it and, you know, encouraged it. I was always going off with him, and mm -hmm. he would tell me these stories. Uh, and when he died, it was a tremendous sadness for me. And I understood my grandmother, great-grandmother, all said, he's grieving too much for a young kid. Uh, let's take that cane away from him. Let him know that there's life. There, uh, there's something else going on. And I have to tell you that I remember even now the pain of that loss my and the, the loss of when they took the cane away from me but what i basically do remember is because they looked at me in such awe i started singing hmm. and i i didn't sing the stuff that i learned in church i started singing the stuff that i thought i remembered you know from him teaching me that the cane was singing i had no idea what the words meant i just made these sounds and everybody looked and said, what? What are you singing? Where did you learn those songs? And in my opinion, that was the beginning. <laughs> I, you, you communicated that for folks listening. Go buy the book if you have not bought the book, because you communicated that so beautifully. When I started reading the book, Dr. Clemens, I was out in public. I was at my favorite coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And I got teared up no more, <laughs> at oh. least three times through the introduction in that first section, because the way that you're conveying that relationship you've just talked about and the things that happened with your family, it's just, it's very moving. It's beautiful. It Thank really you is. very much. 
you touched on in talking about, and I had no idea how many pages you had, how this started with, <laughs> but I, I do know that you mentioned in, in the book that people have been encouraging you to write this and you've been working on it in pieces for a long time. Um, at what point did you make that trip to the fellow in New York and kind of decide you really wanted to put this out in the world? And, and what made you move forward with that? Well, I, I had always meant for it to have a public uh, presence somehow or another. Uh, I, I wasn't just writing it for myself. I was writing it uh, uh, as a, um, like a reader, how to be gay, how to be a young person, how to survive in the black community if you're not going to be a part of gangs or do something with drugs. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a survival um, a letter as well as it was a, a, a real uh, deep sharing of how it, what it's like to have a commitment in your life, something that gives you energy, focus, a passion. I have passion about music and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little well, you've overflow. put a lot of work into it, and it's personal. I mean, it's so deeply personal, and you're oh. putting yourself out there in a, in a whole different lane than anything you've ever done. Writing a book is a completely different animal. Oh, it is. Let me tell you, it's not like singing at all. No. But, you know, what's remarkable is how I can combine the two, because everybody basically... I think I can say it this way. They they know I'm a singer. Everybody. I mean, millions of people watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I've never had a single first seller or anything like that in the recording industry. But everybody knows Dr. Clemens and Francois' sound. So sure. uh, everywhere they've said, they said, would you sing a song? Would you sing a song or two? Do you mind? Heck no, I don't mind. <laughs> Are you kidding? Uh, and so I sing as well as talk about the book and my great-grandmother and the people who have influenced me along with Fred Rogers. It's been a tremendous growing experience just writing about it, uh, sharing with people on, on this level. I knew this book had to be written, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I read the, the, the excellent book by Max King, Maxwell King, who wrote the uh, official biography on Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. I think it's excellent. It's just excellent. But he didn't know Fred like I did. And the stories that I talk about, the things that happen, Max cannot write about. Somebody sure. else needs it, right? And it's me. So I, re- uh, and also, when I see Fred sometimes on television or some of the presentations, he comes off, in my opinion, as a, a white leader, a white savior. And first of all, I don't think he was interested like that in color. Secondly, I don't think what he has to say pertains to just one color of people. Mm-hmm. And he certainly was not a racist. As you know, that one scene that we did when we sat uh, outside of his house in the neighborhood and put our feet in the same water. That was yeah. because I was furious with some of the things that were going on in the country where young people were swimming in this uh, neighborhood, the city pools, and there were officials going around putting chemicals in that water saying, you cannot do this, even though they were taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And they were uh, honest people, they were hardworking. I thought that is the worst thing. I was furious. And I, I was when I went to Fred, I was almost like I was saying, do something about this. Can't you do something about this? And, of course, he thought about it very, very deeply. And he, uh, we talked on the phone, and he sent me the script. And when I read the script, I thought, well, where's the stuff? He's, where, <laughs> where he's dealing with what I'm talking about? He had, you know, going outside of his house, sitting with our feet in that pool was the most uh, inconsequential, frivolous thing <laughs> in my mind. That's how young and different uh. focused I was. I did not really, really understand what this man was saying, but it has been the singularly the most profound thing that people have asked me about over the 40, 50 years that I've been, uh, was involved with the program. They want to know, what do you think about this, putting your feet mm-hmm. in the same tub? And at the end, when he was helping you dry your feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a question for America to deal with our different color, which was nothing in really in my mind, and our uh, using the same towel, which we did. He said it. You can use my towel. Yeah. And I can see yes. America saying, oh, no, he's black. He can't use your towel. What if his color comes off and comes on to you or something ridiculous? Mm. But there was this thing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen friends swimming together. say, here, you can use this towel. It's not um, something you would do with a stranger, I don't think. But if you love someone, you're intimate, it's family, you can use the same towel and throw it in the laundry and go on about your business. Well, that was sort of Fred's attitude. We're family. And 
you need your feet dry and I'm here. And his very core of Christianity, in my opinion, was servitude. One had to have a way of serving humanity. The rest of this stuff is frivolous and he didn't have any parts of it. He was not a Hollywood personality. I tell him that all the time. If you head out to Hollywood to film another film, you're heading in the wrong direction. Come to either to Pittsburgh, Latrobe, where he was born, or come here to my house. Nobody asked me one question about that film, and they should have, mm. because I could have helped them get to the core of what they left out. You see, Fred and I had a spiritual bond. And sometimes that's hard for white people to understand, a black man and a white man who are united with a purpose. It's, it's destiny, some people were saying. It's our destiny. And I'm totally comfortable. There are times when Fred and I are together, I'm teaching him about slavery, about lack, about loss, about parents fighting brutality. He didn't have any experience in that area. What could he teach me? Sure. Nothing. So when we sat down, he was deeply, deeply curious. Francois, what was that like? How did you feel? My goodness, he said. It's a miracle that you survived this far. In fact, he was the one who suggested I go into therapy because it was so worrisome to me to have gone through this very, very difficult time and come out the other end, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so there were times when we were together, we were discussing biblical themes like the prodigal son and the innocent being slain and the, the, the Pharaoh and the, and the Israelites and uh, Moses' role and black people and our role here in America, we were discussing some serious stuff. But he didn't really discuss that on air that way. But I think that was one of the things that drew us into this incredible, um, this fog where we would go in there and talk about our purpose for coming here, telling people we love them, that it's only one spirit in the world. We're all a part of it. We're all one. How do we reach out and embrace people who think they're outside of that circle? There are lots of people, you know, who do. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of people who are pushing people outside of that circle. Say, no, 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 no. It says, love your neighbor. It doesn't say if they are Christian, if they are straight, if they are white. None of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's very simple. Forgive me. No, that ties back to what you were saying earlier uh, when I asked, would things be different now? And and you said no. And just the piece of people talk more, which which I agree with, but the action's not there. And so I think you could probably say any time, but now it's a good time to have the book come back out again as a reminder of all of those things that you're saying, because we've come so many years, but we're still in the same place in terms of yes. people not yes. loving one another just for being another human being. Yes. I have to tell you that I think about that sometimes. That I could not have planned to have this book come out at a, at a better time where it talks about this. Um, I, I certainly had nothing to do with it. I wouldn't know where to start. But this virus that's uh, affecting the whole mm -hmm. world, in my opinion, is an opportunity for people to understand we're all connected. But whatever's happening in China, we're going to get it. Whatever's happening in South America, they're going to get it. You know what I mean in China, in Russia. We're all connected. We are one. And the only way we're going to survive this challenge is as a community. Yes. We have to come together. Everybody's going to have to sacrifice on some level. And if, if, if we think we can pull ourselves away and go up into the mountains somewhere and say, let them suffer down there, there's going to be a... It's a you're going to be bitterly disappointed because it's showing over and over how much we need one another. The family has to be supportive. You have to help your neighbor. You have to help the children. This man can't put food on the table, so we've got to do something. You cannot just say, oh, it's not my business. I'm fine. No. Right. Doesn't work. Never. Absolutely. Um, I've got 
just a couple more questions, if that's okay to switch gears a little bit. Oh, of course, yes. Um, we've talked quite a bit about your writing, and I wanted to um, dig a little bit more into some of your influences from what you've read. And you talk about in a couple places in the book, even from being a younger child growing up reading, I think you mentioned Huckleberry Finn and Ren Tin Tin and the Bible, of course, yes. things like that. Um, are there... I guess what role did reading play for you growing up? Was that something you you did a lot? Was that an influence to you when uh, you were younger? Well, I started learning to read when I was very young. My mother, uh, I, before I went to school, I could read. Uh, I loved reading. I felt I uh, I had learned something, and it was opening a new world when I you know get those colorful books with pictures and I turn pages. Well, uh, I began to discover that I not only liked color. But I like adventure, the kinds of seeing these far. My mother sang that song, those those far away places with strange sounding names. But I know that I'm yearning to see those far away places I've been dreaming about in a book that I took from the shelf. And she sang that song to me as a boy, and I never ever forget it. It almost brings ah. Tears to my eyes because she never traveled. I tried so hard sometimes to get her to go with me. She wouldn't. She was afraid to fly. And uh, I was in Italy and Germany and Tokyo and Korea. I said, Mother, come on. Uh, I'll pay for it. I'll pay. She said, no, no, I'm not getting on those airplanes. So, uh, so I learned that from her and from reading. And I read uh, the different poets. I mentioned the romantic poets. But I also love reading uh, people like um, Maya Angelou, her life, mm -hmm. reading biographies of certain people that inspired me to see what W.E.B. Du Bois was going through, what Frederick Douglass was going through. Uh, I'm the Alexander Twilight artist in residence right now. I'm emeritus, but I was. There was a, um, a black person who was the first person ever to go to college here in 1823, uh, 20, I think it was. And uh, he was a mulatto, so he was very light-skinned. And frankly, they didn't know he was black uh, until his father came to visit him. When his father came to visit, they discovered that Alexander Twilight was indeed half black and half white. Uh, his mother was white. Well, this whole uh, reading about the troubles and the toil of uh, these people who were just wanted to work hard and learn, and instead, many times in places like Vermont, they were shunned. Pushed away and said, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. Why? Because of your color. And I heard that a lot when I was a boy. And reading how certain people overcame these racial blocks, George Washington Carver and others who were not necessarily born rich. Frederick Douglass was a slave. And uh, to struggle, the way they struggled, uh, gave me a lot of uh, encouragement. A lot of encouragement. I began to know who I am then, because I had in the book I talk about the, the Unita, uh, Ukrainian church where the priest threw me out. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a huge shock to me. A church, and I can't come into church. And then he said, "Get out of here. You don't belong here. Go on." There were things like that that happened. I thought, "Well, I'll be damned." It wakes you up. You grow up too fast, in my opinion, because uh, there's no reason for anybody but certainly not an adult, to treat an adolescent for coming inside out of curiosity, mm -hmm. to look. And um, I, I, be, I knew that that was also out there in the world. Everything was not going to be hunky-dory. My voice teacher in Youngstown, Mr. Miller, my Ron, uh, Ron uh, Gould, my other voice teacher, private, they were wonderful guys. And some of the things, you know, so I was living inside like schizophrenic. There were these white people who were being very, very good to me, supportive. And then there were these white people who were acting like ghouls from hell or something. They were, I thought, well, what the heck is this? Who, which one is which? You know, back and forth. And then, of who course, I had to. Yeah. Whom do you trust? So I felt the whole first 30 years of my life was trying to figure out whom to trust. Because even some black folk, like my um, stepfather, was not one that you could trust. He was very abusive. And uh, he's been a very interesting presence in my life 
because uh, I meditate, as I told you a lot. And when I meditated, I think about him because I, I had a lot to think about trying to forgive him for what he did to me. I didn't feel he had a right to my mother. I saw her as an enabler. So I had some real angry feelings towards her, too. Mm -hmm. And through the years, I'll never forget, it was uh, in 1988, something finally happened inside of me where I realized, oh, I don't hate him anymore. I don't want to hate him anymore. In fact, I want to love him. Uh, and I, I began to have these warm, human, positive feelings about him. And I remember when I was meditating, it was, it was like he came to me and said, you know, uh, I need to tell you something. And I said, well, yes. He said, you have become my teacher. I said, I? Your teacher? He said, yes. You have taught me woo, <laughs> about unconditional love. He said, when you were a boy, I wanted to love you so much. But I couldn't embrace you because you were gay and because it was so, so, so different. Everyone was telling me that was a sin and that there was something wrong with you. And here you are. Uh, you have forgiven me for what I did to you. And uh, you've told me that you love me. And he said, <sighs> I love you too. I've always loved you. You're a very special person. Mm. Came into my life for a reason. That's a very, very wonderful, wonderful thing for any person to have. That's your parent says to you, I love you unconditionally. I got it when I got it. I'm very grateful. But it was, whoo, it was transformative when I finally was able to release all that pent up hate and meanness and madness and just let myself love this man. I and I chose to love him and I continue to choose. That's uh, one of the profoundly wonderful things that being on this journey, I would not change. Mm. Oh. Sure. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah. Oh boy. So anyway, that was the kind of thing I could share with Fred Rogers also because he had very, very loving parents who uh, supported him all mm. the way. There were so many wonderful things and he taught me unconditional love when he told me, I love you, Francois. I thought, what? You're talking to me? He said, yes, <laughs> I'm talking to you. And he said, I've been talking to you for two years. And you heard me today. Wow. It's like the whole world exploded, this beautiful explosion. And we were in the middle of it. Uh, it, it changed my life, hearing him say those words. And he knew it. He understood. Mm -hmm. He knew it. And... That was part of our bond. It just, zoom, we were one after that. Never. Uh, I stopped seeing him as a white man. Of course his skin was white. But there was something else, an element to him that meant the world to me. It, because it opened up the same thing inside of me. So when I'm with my cosmic children here <laughs> and all over, I tell them, you have a legacy. And you have something to live up to. Woo! I always had a very popular class. Uh, I never had want for students. We did some of everything. But I also took them on a couple of trips, either to New York City a couple of times, the Broadway shows, and up to Boston. I knew people in the theater, you know, mm -hmm. so I knew uh, Color Purple and uh, the, the, uh, wow. uh, the girls, uh, the Supremes. What was that that was called? Um, uh, oh, what was that? Uh, uh, Dream Broadway Girls? Show. Dream Girls. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, 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 yes. And they loved Dreamgirls, and they loved um, uh, the one about, let's see, love, Rent. Mm -hmm. Oh, they loved mm -hmm. Rent. And the one about uh, the Blue Men, the guys who had their skin all yes. blue and they were doing. Mm -hmm. Oh, they loved that show. And they stomp, the one they got on these big barrels. Yes, <laughs> I, I've seen I that. Like That's a good one. Half the stuff they wanted <laughs> to see, but mm -hmm. I took them. And then we went up to Harlem. Instead of going to Chinatown or Midtown or The Village or Chelsea, we went up to Harlem. And my favorite restaurant was uh, Sylvia's at the time. It still, probably still is. And I would take everybody who wanted to go to dinner to Sylvia's. And the college had given me a budget, by the way. And uh, we all sat around eating soul food and talking about differences. Because uh, in the 20s, I was telling them there was a movement called the Negritude, where people talked about why black people spoke the way we speak, jazz music, 
uh, singing the way we sing, um, dressing the way we dress, colors that we like. It was a very interesting experience for many of them. So I would take them up to Harlem to the Studio Museum uh, on 125th Street. Excellent, excellent museum. It uh, shows uh, black people's artworks, but others probably as well, but definitely black artists. Then I took them up to the Schomburg, which is a great library. If you want to know about Duke Ellington or Sarah Vaughan or the early uh, Louis Armstrong mm -hmm. down in uh, New Orleans, you go to the Schomburg and they have it. Plus they have all my stuff from the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. And several of my students had to do papers on that. So they knew uh, about the uh, Schomburg Library. But what a wonderful collection. And then we walked around. And we all got back here to Middlebury. And I said, well, nobody got eaten alive. <laughs> nobody got beat up. Uh, we stayed overnight. We almost all, sometimes they say two nights. Uh, there was a youth hostel over there that I knew about. So I got them reservations at the youth hostel. But Columbia University is located not too far <laughs> from, uh, well, many people consider it in Harlem. So we would go up there and we would walk. I say, now this is where, you know, we are, folks, and, and there are black people up here, there are Latin people up here, there are Asian people up here, there are everything. And this is the world. Get used to it. And they would relax, and we start, strangers would talk us, where are you from? What are you doing here? <clears throat> Everyone was always very nice. And then we would end it with soul food and uh, maybe a Broadway show every year. So they wanted to be in that class. The, I, it was a, a cultural program, but it was also a history program on nigritude and black people in America. And what the one thing I, I, I actually taught them this we by the newspaper and we would read and then we talk about what we read. They filtered information on black people. They just mm -hmm. dropped it off the table and they didn't. I say, well, what happened to so and so? And what happened to this? Or what happened? And I said, oh, was that there? I didn't see it. And we go back. Huh. Yes. And we would um, find the part, and I show them how often they uh, filter experiences of black people because they don't consider them important. Mm -hmm. And uh, they weren't, they were raised to think that if it was black, it was inferior in some way. Now, they could like pop artists, uh, musicians, and singers, but it didn't carry over into their academic and their private life. So we used to talk about that. Where do you slam the door? How do you keep them out? Why do you keep them out? Is it necessary? Uh, I In that one area, I think things are different now in that black and white people talk very, very openly about their relationships. Uh, back when I, in the 50s and 60s, they did not. Mm. And it was a shock to me to find how many white people were so damn helpful. I mean, they really, my uh, high school principal was the one who said to me, I hear you want to go to Oberlin. Have you got any money? I said, money? Oh, no, I hadn't thought about that yet. And he said, well, Oberlin was my alma mater. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'm going to help you. Just like that. I said, what? He said, yes. You've got good grades here, and uh, you're a good student, hard worker. It's a great music school. I think it'll be very good for you. I'm going to help you. I had to live with that for a long time. Where is this kindness coming from? And uh, that's how I got to go there. The Oberlin Alumni Club in Youngstown got together. And those people were told my story. And they took up a collection. And they, I became the, the raison d'etre. The reason they got together was to raise money to help Francois get through Oberlin. I never could have gotten through without them. Never. And I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> To this man who said to me, I hear you want to go to Oberlin. I'm going to help you. So, and uh, 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 I can say this in hindsight now. Fred was right in the sense of all the helpers around. Every time I wanted mm -hmm. to do something, it seems like somebody would step forward or some incident would happen that the circumstances go click, 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 click. Ah, I can do it. I can do this. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that part of my life. It was uh, a big surprise sometimes that uh, I accomplished some of the things that I wanted to accomplish when it seemed so impossible. Well, here I am. <laughs> You've done what you wanted to and then some. <laughs> and then some. You better believe it. Um, I've got one last thing I wanted to ask you about in, in terms of your 
reading interests and all. Um, you mentioned in the book, um, and I believe it was in high school or college, perhaps you were in reading James Baldwin, some really, I guess, more like modern classics we think of now, really significant authors. Um, I was wondering if you could share some about that, like what you enjoyed reading. I would imagine reading Baldwin had a a profound influence on you, um, just in terms of what you were talking about before, that there's people out in the world who were gay writing about things. Um, So I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you about that. Well, that was um, uh, a lot of it. I started with kind of uh, uh, um, James Bowen because he wrote Fire Next Time. He wrote uh, um, Giovanni's Room. a number of his books were just wonderful going through the civil rights struggle. And he was saying things about the judgments and the decisions that I felt were very, very, very important. So uh, he was, he probably had the most, and then I, I found out he was gay when he wrote Giovanni's Room. Uh, my, my high school English teacher said, I'm telling you about this book, but you cannot tell anybody I told you because oh. I would be fired, I lose my job. So I didn't say anything, but I read it. I thought, oh, my God, he was gay? Because nobody was out, not in mm-hmm. my circle. And then uh, Langston Hughes, I, read, I have known rivers, and he talks about the, the Nile River. I began to think about Egypt as a black country. It looks south to Africa, Sudan, Chad, those other, uh, Ethiopia, countries around. Uh, that was a big influence. Uh, I read um, Maya Angelou. I mentioned her earlier. Mm-hmm. My goodness, what a great writer. Lucille Clifton was another writer poet I read. Oh, my God, because she had a certain spirituality, but a certain rough, short crop cropping in her writing that I loved. And I encourage several of my students who write uh, to read hers because she doesn't have any extra words. And I have lots of. Them. <laughs> um, so I love Lucille Clifton. Also, I met Gwendolyn Brooks, the great Pulitzer Prize lady in uh, uh, Chicago there. And since I was going there with Fred Rogers to do some singing, I, I let her know that I was coming and she ran a writer's workshop. And she invited me to come to the writer's workshop. It worked out perfectly. And I met some very, very exciting young writers there at the time. And uh, I went to Chicago about five times. And every single time it seemed I got there at a time that I could go and spend time with Gwendolyn Brooks and her class. So oh, she wow. encouraged me. It was wonderful. I mean, what was that? What did I do again? She uh, read. I sent her some of my writings and stuff, and she uh, she responded always. In fact, I had several letters. I don't know where they are right now, but she wrote them in hand. So I want to frame them. Oh. <laughs> I got to find them. Uh, so I moved into this house. You know, you're downsizing, and some things are missing or <laughs> lost. I don't know, but it's going to take me a while to get everything straightened out. So they were my, uh, some of my main writers. I also love this um, writer from South Africa. Um, what was her name? Uh, she wrote about uh, um, Alexander the Great. Uh, Mary, Mary Renault was her name. And Mary Renault wrote these books about the king must die, the last of the wine. They had a lot of Greek mythology mixed in, you know, the Macedonian and the, uh, the people who lived there in Greece and Rome and Athens. Athens. Uh, the actor must, the king must die, something about an actor. Those books were wonderful because they more than casually suggested that Alexander was gay. And Hephaestion, one of his guards, was his lover. Uh, and there are other stories that she tells in a very realistic way. And what she explains is how ancient, the ancient world did not have the inhibitions of Christianity on sexuality. So you have uh, ancient civilizations in uh, Greece, Macedonia, even all the way over to India, which were not influenced by Christianity. So mm-hmm. you had these relationships <clears throat> with men to men, and probably as often to women to women, where um, it was considered a thing that a person could choose to do and it was acceptable. In fact, sometimes it was encouraged in order to learn a trade or to spend time with someone. Um, I found her Information and her attitudes, very, very fascinating. Just so, and so I read a lot of her. Well, Dr. Clemens, thank you so much. You have been so generous with your time and telling these stories and being so open about it. And thank you for sharing 
books. I, I love talking to folks about other influences because I think it's kind of magic. Like you lose yourself in music, but you also can lose yourself in a book when you find something oh, that absolutely. you identify with and you see yourself in. I'm so thankful to have had the chance to talk with you. Well, you're a nice lady. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. Well, that's it for this edition of Conversations with Unexpected Book Nerds. Thank you so much to Dr. Francois Clemens for taking the time to talk with me today. As a reminder for everyone listening to the interview, his debut memoir, Officer Clemens, is available on May 5th. Be sure to check it out. It is full of fantastic stories about the life of Dr. Clemens and his relationship with Fred Rogers. You can find Dr. Clemens online at www.francoisclemens.net. That's F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S Clemens.net. I am Beth Mowbray, and you can find me on Instagram at B is for books. That's B period is for books. Also be sure to check out more great content right here at the Nerd Daily. <laughs>